Well, good evening. Uh, we are starting a new sermon series, and I'm, I'm kind of excited about it. Um, it's called Until All Have Heard. Um, we're trying something new. Uh, we're doing a, fu- a full-length sermon series on evangelism. It's something that I don't think is maybe talked about as often as it should be, but it is really the primary focus of who we are. Um, over the next couple of weeks, you'll hear Rory, and you'll hear Brian, and you'll hear Jonathan speak on evangelism. But what I wanted to do today was kind of lay the foundation on what evangelism is and the components that are required for evangelism. Because oftentimes we don't always think about that. But there are certain components that before you go out and you try to evangelize, there are certain components that you kind of need to find within yourself to be able to, to share that, that message. Um, first off, who, who in here would say that they have faith? Okay, I mean, obviously you come into church, you have some aspect of faith. And who in here would say that they, they have hope for the future, or they have hope in the future? All right, good. So, so we have faith, we have hope. And who would say they love God and their neighbor? Now see, I mean, you're going to say that, those are the good church answers to agree with the pastor. But I want to ask you, how are those things affecting your life and the lives of those around you. Faith, uh, in, in the book of James, James says that faith without works is dead. So, I mean, we, we don't want to just kind of say, well, you know, I have faith. Well, faith doesn't really mean that much, to be honest. Uh, this is what I want you to understand. Faith is the one thing that every person has. No matter what they tell you, faith is the one thing that every person has. The two things we all need are hope and love. But I wanted to give you this. But faith placed in the wrong thing eliminates the possibility for hope and love. And you say, well, what do you mean, Jacob? What do you mean that everybody has faith? And what do you mean that um, faith placed in the wrong things remove hope and love? Prime example. Uh, Evolutionists would say that we kind of evolved from nothing and became this beautiful specimen that you see on stage. Uh, Rory laughed at least. Uh, but, uh, but, he, but here's the bottom line. It takes faith to believe in the evolutionary process. Because you were suggesting that something came from nothing, it collided, it created a big bang, and it released into, uh, uh, I guess, a cesspool of chemicals that resulted in life. It takes faith to believe that. But here's the thing. With no creator, we have no plan. And with no plan, we have no purpose. And with no purpose, we have no hope. And with no hope, we have no love. So faith placed in the wrong thing removes hope and love. The two things that every single person is craving. In here today, you are craving those two things. You are craving hope for the future, and you are craving love and compassion. It's why you marry, and it's why you have children, to be honest. Children are the future, and you marry because you love somebody. So we all crave hope and love. I'm going to give you the three definitions as we find them in our English dictionary. Uh, Faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. With that definition, you can see where an evolutionist could put their total trust in the evolutionary process. They're putting it into something. Um, 
Hope is a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. Um, we all have expectations of this life. Good, bad, or indifferent, we have an expectation on life. Love is an intense feeling of deep affection. Uh, it would go so far as to also say in regards to agape love, it is a commitment. It is an agreed upon love and compassion that even if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I'm going to keep up my end of the bargain. That is the idea of an agape love that Jesus displayed on the cross. He said that, you know, even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to die on the cross for you because I love you and I want to see what's best for you. So those are our three definitions. And as we move forward, I want you to look at, as the, as the Christian kind of views it, a Christian's faith and trust are in Jesus and salvation. A Christian's hope is in the heaven. Uh, the Christian's hope is that heaven is real and that death is a lie. I mean, those are the, the, the big things that we get hung up on. We want to believe that there is a heaven. Even if you see people who don't believe in Jesus, they don't profess church, they don't go to church, uh, and they're at the bar every weekend, they will still tell you they want to believe in a heaven. They want that hope that life is better after this. Christians' capacity for love comes from the God of love himself. That is where our capacity for love comes. What I hope to accomplish today is a way for you to share your testimony that will lead others to a loving God. It is important to know that evangelism starts first and foremost in the home. You never thought about it that way, did you? I never thought about it that way. But my parents, for example, my parents' greatest testimony, and if you're wondering what evangelism is, evangelism, simply put, is you sharing your testimony of hope and love and faith. That is all evangelism is. It's sharing your story. My parents, their greatest testimony of faith, hope, and love is the fact that they have raised six children, all of whom have gone on to marry good spouses, to raise good children, or in the process of raising good children. Most of us are still in the process of raising good children. And they are all in church today professing Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, not many people can say that out of six kids, they all turned out good. They all turned out to be good people who love God and love their, their neighborhoods and their communities and want to serve other people. That is the greatest testimony that my parents have as Christians and as people. That is where evangelism starts. Because if you can't win your own spouse, if you can't win your children to a loving, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ, how in the world do you expect to share your faith story with anybody else? Every night before I go to bed, I take Lavender in, I lay her down in her, in her crib, and we say the Lord's Prayer. I, my goal is that by three years old, she knows the Lord's Prayer. Lofty goal, I know, but I think it'd be so cool for her to be the only three-year-old who knows the entire Lord's Prayer. We're gunning for it every day. But nonetheless, since the day she was born, I have not failed to pray that prayer over her life. That doesn't mean that I'm anything special, but evangelism starts in the home. And then it goes to the church. 
It's about sharing your faith story with other believers. It's about coming to church. It's about developing your faith, understanding what you believe, understanding what you hope in. I mean, I I really want to be honest, and I don't want you to answer, but I want you to think for a moment. You say you have faith. Great. Faith in what? You say you have hope. In what? You say you have love. Love for what? You should be able to define those things. Because the world, when they approach you, is going to want to know how you define those things. And how you define them will determine if they want to pursue Jesus. If they want to pursue the church. If they want to pursue this idea of Christianity. C.S. Lewis called Christianity the good infection. I love, that, uh, I love that statement. He called it the good infection. And here's why. Because he knew that when Christianity was done right, it was the most contagious thing the world had ever seen. When done right. I'm not talking about how we, we pretend to do it today. I'm not talking about doing good deeds so that you can be seen of men. I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm not talking about reading your Bible I'm talking about the nitty-gritty, loving your neighbor, crying over things, being together, being in relationships, and listening to one another. We have created a society, and I will get to this later, we have created a society of Christians who are overly defensive and are more concerned with um, convincing you they're right than they are about your salvation. I am not here to convince you that I'm right. I am here to convince you that there is a better way and God loves you and he wants to lead you into a relationship with him. It's not about being right. Let's start and by taking a look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, 8-17 says this. To all Christians, finally all of you should be of one mind, unified, Sympathize with, one, uh, sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. If you remember right, Jesus told his disciples, they will know you are my, my disciples by the love you have one for another. That is the first thing the world's going to see is how you treat your family and how you treat your friends. If they see a husband who is constantly yelling at his wife and his kids, they're not going to want to be your friend. They're not going to want to come hear you preach. They're not going to want to go to your small group. They're not going to want to come to your church. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, instead, pay them back with blessings. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. I mean, don't you want to be a part of a church like that? Don't you want to be a part of a church where you know that no one's going to be lying about you? No one's going to be talking bad about you? Everybody's going to be loving and tender and kind? That's what people want. That's what people want. They want a loving, tender person to meet them at the door, shake their hand and say, good to have you. Haven't met you today. I love the fact that we are trying to do something new here. It's hard. It's not easy. But the sole purpose that we are here 
is to reach the people of Baltimore and the surrounding areas. And if you're not here for that reason, you're here for the wrong reasons. If you're here for, if you go to church, I'm going to be honest, if you go to church to develop yourself, you go to church for the wrong reasons. You should be going to church to pour out your worship to a loving God. And, and gathering people in and welcoming people in. The church is for the lost. The church is for the broken. Jesus said, I did not come to save the healthy, but the sick. We are for the sick, the hurting, the broken. And if you're here for any other reason, I'm going to be honest, your motives are wrong. We are here to evangelize and share the gospel of a loving God who sent His only Son. Faith. <clears throat> faith is learning to take God at His word. That is what faith is. Faith is learning to take God at His word. We got our next slide here. Oftentimes, we get wrapped up in this idea that, well, the Bible says so. And to a certain extent, that is true. You need to know what the Bible says. And quite simply, the simple part of the, the, the first step in evangelizing a new person is teaching them to take the Word of God at face value. You say, well, what does that mean, Jacob? I'll read it to you. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. 1 Peter 3, 10 says this, for the Scripture says, if you want to enjoy life and see many days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies, turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right and the ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns His face against those who do evil." The first thing I want you to see is that James 5.16 says that the earnest prayers of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Now, if I am just looking at those scriptures that I've read so far, God wants to help you. 66 books in the Bible. We can't manage to comprehend the five verses that I just read, and we want to complain about all the stuff we don't understand. I am convinced that when the church begins to do everything they do understand, then we won't nearly have to worry about the stuff we don't understand. Yet, for some reason, we want to get in debates and arguments about what we don't understand. Get a hobby. Don't pick a fight with the pastor. Don't pick a fight with your, your neighbor on you know, what theology is better. Love Jesus. Love people. Work towards that. Once you've accomplished all that, then we can talk theology. The next thing we see, though, is that sin hinders prayer. Sin hinders prayer. But simply put, I want to give you a, a, a definition of what sin is, because sometimes people don't understand what sin is. But sin doesn't hinder prayer when it's in your life. I had a pastor. Um, I, I grew up in a Christian school, and I had a pastor, and I loved it, because he would walk down the hallway every day, and as soon as he saw you, he would go, 
Uh, for him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is, and all the kids that have to be like, sin, stupid. I mean, like, he would say it every day, and the guy was always hopped up on coffee. I mean, he had usually had, like, four cups of coffee before, like, any of the kids even got to school. But I loved it because it stuck in my head, and growing up, it wasn't complicated for me. Like, he simplified, he simplified God and religion So simple in that one passage from the book of James. If you know what to do and you don't do it, it's sin. And sometimes life is just that simple. So we don't need to complicate it. But we do need to begin to share what it means and what it looks like. And we need to share the simplicity of Scripture, not all the complicated things of Scripture. We overcomplicate it. If we were going to speak to someone about the Christian faith, I would take simple, clear verses like this and challenge them to live them out. Regardless of their beliefs as a person, they cannot deny that the methods of Christianity work to strengthen social structures. Okay, does does that make sense? You take God out of the equation, you take Christianity out of the equation, you take church out of the equation. If you just took the methods that Scripture teaches, our social structures would be fixed. Start there with evangelism. Start about what you have in common. Start about making peace. So let's pretend for a moment that these verses aren't from the Bible and they are just some some pastor, some person, somebody giving you advice, okay? If somebody came to you and said... If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, stop speaking evil and don't lie. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Now, can anybody argue with that? I can't. That is as simple as I can make it. Why don't we make it that simple? Why don't we pull verses out like that and say, this is what God wants for you? He doesn't want you to be surrounded with people who lie. He doesn't want you to be surrounded with evil. He wants you to do good. He wants you to know that you are loved and highly favored. Make it simple for people. Let them know that there's a God and a church and a people who love them. It is simple. We make it way too complicated. What person can honestly disagree with these statements? When evangelizing, we get too caught up in theological dilemmas. We have a mentality that says we need to get them saved and know Christ, and we need to do it yesterday. Here's the reality. Evangelism takes time. You start planting seeds progressively. Sometimes when we go out to evangelize, we act as though we've been locked in a room in isolation for like 30 days and we've never seen a new person in our entire life. And we're like, oh boy, we got to get this one in. And then they're like, man, this guy's a freak. He's loony. You see, I know, I know in your mind you're thinking, well, that's my passion for the Lord. No, it's not. That's... that's some, that's some uh, mentality that you have been raised on where you feel that you have to get them saved and you have to get them saved today or they're going to burn in hell tomorrow. 
Because Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when Jesus is coming back. They are never going to get saved any sooner or later than God impresses upon their heart. And the Holy Spirit is what leads them to salvation, not you. Your job is to water and seed and spread the word. That is your job. Your job is not to save. And the moment you think that your job is to lead someone to salvation is the moment that you get evangelism wrong. Because God is the one that brings forth, uh, brings forth the, the growth. He's the one that brings forth the harvest. Yet we all want to say, you know, I led this person to Christ. I led this person to Christ. Maybe that is the worst thing we can all say. Because it is the Holy Spirit. My job is to water. My job is to spread the seed. God can, God can take a small verse like that, like I just read. God can take those small verses that mention nothing about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. God can take those small verses, pique the curiosity of man, and lead them to salvation with or without Jacob Barker. But it's my job to spread the seed. Sin, uh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Today's world, though, needs to see the value before they offer the commitment. So as Christians, we need to learn to focus on the common ground of our neighbors as we need to live the change we hope to see. We need to be the change that we hope to see. See, there was a whole generation and generations before me and generations before me where they accepted the word of God blindly. And I love Billy Graham, but I'm going to use Billy Graham as an example. You would have these people who would go to these Billy Graham uh, events and millions and thousands of people over the time period were saved. But I almost wonder, and I, I just, I, I have to wonder, in the midst of all that, did they go home and open up the Bible? Were their lives really changed? If it's not changing the way you live outside the church, then it's not real. It needs to be changing everything we do. And, and what, this, what this generation today wants to see is they saw the generation before them how they define it, okay? I want, I want to be clear. The generation before this, this up-and-coming generation sees the church as, for the most part, hypocrite. Do as I say, but not as I do kind of thing. They want to see love. They want to see compassion. They want to see servanthood. They want to know that they can come to you and ask the tough questions. And they have a lot of good questions. Have you ever talked to a millennial a Gen Xer, or is, that, is it Z, Gen Z, right? That's the next one, it's Gen Z. Have you ever talked to them? They have way better questions than we do. And the questions keep getting better. But the problem is, and I will say this, I grew up in a, I grew up in a time period where if you had a sin or a struggle in your life, what was the best thing you could do? Just don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't do it, and don't talk about it. That was a lot of the advice that I got. Growing up, 
Don't talk about it and don't do it. And I can tell you right now, the generation, I know that they were trying to help me, but at 13 years old, that's not what I needed to hear. I needed someone to listen to me. And this generation needs someone to listen to them, someone who is not afraid to handle the, the tough questions. And we'll, we'll use this example real quick, homosexuality. It's the one thing that people don't want to talk about, one way or another, good, bad, or indifferent, they don't want to talk about it. The church definitely doesn't want to talk about it. And the church spent so much time not wanting to talk about it that now our, our children are confused. All because we said, don't do it, don't talk about it. Out of sight, out of mind. Well, it's not going to stay out of sight, and it's not going to stay out of mind, so we might as well just handle it head on and have the tough, tough conversations. Hope is the optimistic expectation that God has a plan. Hope in God assures you that there's a plan and a purpose for your life designed by the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Because like all maps, in order to get from the beginning to the end, you have to have a plan. And that is where we find our hope, is that we have a purpose and that we have a plan and a creator that designed us for a specific plan or purpose. 1 Peter 3.13 picks up here and says, Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? Even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship, and I'm going to throw this in there, you must worship with optimism. I don't think that the word worship, I don't think you can be a worship leader, I don't think you can worship the Lord and be a pessimist. Like, that doesn't connect with me at all. We are called to glorify God, and part of glorifying God is the optimism that there is hope in his salvation. There is hope for a future. Christ, uh, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Your faith leads to hope for others. As you live out your faith sincerely, people will begin to question your choices. When questions arise, look for opportunities to point them to Jesus Christ. If you notice, in verse 15, verse 15 says this, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Always be ready to explain it. Uh, this is from the New Living Translation. That's what I'm reading from. So if you're following along in a different translation, it might say, always be willing to give a defense. I don't like that word. I don't like the word defense. You want to know why? Because I feel like it's turned Christians into a bunch of defensive people. God uh, created the world, created the universe, and he created me. Surely doesn't need me to defend him. He can defend himself. He's a big boy. He's a big God. Need me. But he asked me to explain what I believe to other people. You see, defense suggests that I'm right, you're wrong. Explaining it suggests that I'm going to share it with you and we can open up in, a, in an open dialogue. We can talk about it. 
So I, I prefer the, the term explain it as opposed to defend it. Um, because I don't think I need to defend God. But it's true, we've created a whole society of Christians who are defensive. We are defensive towards the Democrats and we are defensive towards the Republicans. We are defensive towards refugees and we are defensive towards those who want to take our guns away. We are defensive towards homosexuality. All the world knows is what we are against. But do they know we are loving? Do they know we are kind? Do they know we are patient? Do they know we are joyful? Do they know we are peaceful, good, faithful, and self-controlled? Do they know those things about us? No. You want to know why they don't know that about us? Because the moment we see something on social media or on the news that offends us, we go and we make a defensive post about how we agree with it or disagree with it. We look for combat. We look for controversy. And the world is exhausted by it, to be honest. If you insist on being right in your attempts at evangelism, you will come across wrong. If you insist on being right, you will come across wrong. They don't need to be told they're wrong. No one does. God, God can sort that out. We are called to explain our hope, not our disapproval. I really firmly believe that. We are called to explain our hope, not our disapproval. We are called to do this in this way. But do this in a gentle and respectful way, keeping your conscience clear. The last thing I want is to, to get to heaven and have that conversation of, Jacob, you know, you were really hard on that person. They came with questions, and you were really hard on them. And you told them to just trust me, but they didn't know me yet. How are they supposed to trust me, Jacob? Well, I thought I was doing right, Lord. All I called you to do, Jacob, was love them, and to listen to them, and to talk to them, not to get mad with them. See, oftentimes we get mad at people uh, I, had, I was in a conversation with somebody one time and they were saved and they were marrying into an unsaved family. So uh, the, the whole family was saved on this end and the whole family over here was unsaved and the, the husband had recently got saved and they were at a family event and this, this lady who had been saved for a long time said, well, I can't believe they acted that way. I'm sorry, like, nothing in the world surprises me anymore. Why do we believe that people who are struggling to know Christ, why are we surprised when they act like they don't know Christ? That shouldn't surprise us. We have exchanged our testimonies. This one hit me really hard. We have exchanged our testimonies for debates. We put a priority on validating our beliefs while making the world feel defeated. We feel accomplished if we can make the world see the ignorance of their ways. 
But the world isn't ignorant. They're hurting. And they're broken. And they're looking for answers. And they don't need a Christian beating them over the head, telling them they're wrong. They need someone coaching. I mean, my, my daughter is 20 months old. And you want to know the one thing she does a lot? She fails a lot. She trips. She falls. She cries. She's at that age where she cries for no reason. And she's a woman, so some people tell me that'll just keep going. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't get mad at her for failing. And yet, for some reason, when we have a person who's new to the church and they fail, we want to beat them over the head. They're new. I mean, I've been at it a long time, and I'm still bad at it. I could be better. We need to show grace, we need to show love, we need to show mercy. The world isn't ignorant, they're hurting. And every time that you encounter someone, you better remember that they are dealing with something, they're hurting, and the reason they feel and believe the way they do is because of something that has happened to them. People don't have bad ideas. They don't just develop bad ideas. Things happen that cause that bad behavior or cause that bad idea. It's all connected. We need to be loving. We need to be kind. We need to let them see the hope that we have. Hope for a better life. As they see the hope, they will begin to ask the tough questions. And we will be challenged. I'm going to hit this on a sermon later on in this series, but I'll give you a tidbit and then we'll close this up. You want to know why you don't like to uh, evangelize. You want to know why? I can tell you. You're afraid of the tough questions. Yep. You're afraid someone will ask you a question that you can't answer and you'll look stupid. I say it because I've thought it. I say it because I've had people voice it to me. People are afraid to evangelize because they're afraid the question will come up that they can't answer. But here's where it really becomes a stumbling block. They don't want to work to find the answer. You see, if I evangelize, and I'll use Abby as an example because she's my sister and I can use Abby. If I evangelize to Abby and Abby asks me a tough question that I don't know, you want to know what I have to do? I have to go back to the Word of God and I have to find and answer the tough questions. And that takes time, and it takes prayer, and it takes energy. And most people don't want to put in time, prayer, and energy to to answer the tough questions. So you want to know how you avoid the tough questions? Don't share your faith. Problem solved. You're afraid of the tough questions. But we're going to be talking about that more in this evangelism series. Finally, the last thing, love. Love is how we reflect the nature of God. And I'm going to read this off, and you know it, and this is what I'm going to send you home with. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it is not arrogant. As I am reading these things, I want you to think about how this reflects God, but I also want you to think about how the world would look if people were patient, kind, not jealous. They didn't brag. They weren't arrogant. They did not act unbecomingly. They did not seek their own. They they did not get easily provoked. 
I've never been in a fight. You want to know why? I'm not easily provoked. Simple things, simple life lessons, not complicated. Words are words. And stupid people say stupid words. Let it go. People are not easily provoked. Love is not easily provoked. Love does not keep score of wrongs. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. This is what I want. Faith is learning to take God at His word. Hope is optimistic expectation that God has a plan. Love is how we reflect the nature of God to this world. So our last slide, and we're going to leave you with this. Here's what you have to do, all right? We are going to begin an evangelism series. Rory's going to be preaching next week, and Brian's going to be preaching next week in Thornville. I'm going to be at, if you want to hear a better version of this, Come to Thornville tomorrow, and I only say a better version because typically the second time is always better. You've already learned it. Plus, I'll probably say some fun things that you didn't hear tonight. Um, but here's what I want you to take home. I want you to read Romans 12. I want you to read 1 Corinthians 13, and I want you to read 1 Peter 1 through 3. It's five chapters. If you read one chapter, I mean, that's not even one chapter a day. But I want you to read these Because these five chapters talk about how you treat one another. And that is where evangelism starts. Learning how to treat other people and how to behave. If you can learn how to treat other people, evangelism becomes easier. The next thing, uh, did I get all that on the screen there, Rory? It's stay connected, right? Okay, so stay connected, TM at gmail.com. I want you to write that down. We're going to have this every week. What we're going to do is we're going to do about a four-week sermon series, and at the end of the sermon series, we're going to have a really fun thing. We're going to have a panel session. So every question that you have about evangelism can be emailed to this stayconnectedtm at gmail. Every question you have about evangelism can be emailed to that. We will then take all the questions over the next four weeks And we will divide them up among all of our pastors. And our pastors will all be on stage answering the tough questions. Uh, Pretty excited about this. It's a a four-week thing. So if, if, like, uh, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, Jacob, I went to evangelize and, you know, uh, I knocked on the door and the lady answered the door and she said, I recently lost my child to cancer Uh, How do I handle that? Those are tough questions you might face when you come across evangelism. If you have tough questions like that, if you have thoughts in your head and you want to kind of have those answered, I guarantee you will answer all of them depending on what they're at. If we don't answer them on try to answer them in a personal email or connect with you personally. But we want to answer the tough questions. We want to know that we want you to know that we're here for you and help you learn how to talk and share your faith, okay? So all the tough questions you have over the next four weeks, send to stayconnectedtm at gmail.com.